Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 10 as we continue our study uh, through the book of Romans, called simply uh, the book of Romans. Uh, I wonder how many of you grew up uh, or spent time in a church where you went to church uh, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Sunday night. I'm curious. I just raise your hand if that was kind of your experience. Yeah, that's uh, for, for many of you. Uh, that was my experience, really, from my teenage years on, and then also uh, even for a couple years in pastoral ministry. And, uh, and I'm grateful. I'm grateful for what the Lord did in those churches and, and as we gathered together again Sunday morning and Sunday night. But I do remember vividly on, on Super Bowl Sunday, uh, I remember that there was a great deal of angst among us as pastors, you know, when you had a Sunday evening service on Super Bowl Sunday. And when I was on the East Coast, the, the service started at the exact moment of kickoff. And so there was, a, there was a great deal of unrest as we wondered, will anybody be here at all? And, uh, and in, typically some folks showed up, which we were thankful for, but in the, you know, in 23 years, it's happened a couple of times where the hometown, the local team was playing in the Super Bowl, uh, on the Sunday night, you know, during a worship service. Uh, and then we basically expected that we would have no one there and our fears were realized. Um, well, we don't have a Sunday night service, so you, you're not, you don't have to worry about missing anything there. We do have a Wednesday night um, ministry to adults called Capshaw Academy, and we get together, we, we go through topics, um, theological topics, and sometimes very practical topics, doctrinal topics, and so on. And last week, uh, Pastor Chris very skillfully taught on evangelism, and he asked the question as he first started, why do you think we are so reluctant to do evangelism? And that's a, that's a penetrating question, isn't it? Uh, someone said, you know, we're afraid, we're, fear is a part of it, and certainly that's, that's absolutely right. Uh, someone said, um, you know, we don't know if we'll have all the answers, and, and, and surely that's, that's a concern as well. But I was thinking about you know, even as Chris was talking, I was thinking about the objections, the questions that I've heard over the years. And I think maybe the most difficult one, the hardest one that I've ever heard, the most difficult one to answer goes something like this. And, and I, was actually, I was actually sharing the gospel with someone not too long ago who said this to me. He said, I really want to believe. I desperately want to believe, but I just can't. I mean, I just can't get there. I've read the Bible. I've read books about the Bible. I've studied. I've asked the questions. And I really want to believe. But I, there's just no way uh, that I can get there. Um, that's, that's a difficult ex objection. What do you say to someone who says that? Is, that? is that okay? I mean, is God good with that because they have a desire to believe? Is uh, At least they're trying. I mean, is that a good thing? Well, how do we respond to that? And furthermore, why can't we just live a good life? Talk about evangelism. Why can't we just live a good life and be nice to people and that be enough? Why do we actually have to tell people the gospel? Why do we have to say anything? Paul will answer the questions, those questions in the passage we're in this morning and actually show us what happens when we, we do share the faith. We do share Jesus with others. So uh, Romans 10 will be in 14, uh, verses 14 through 19. And... Um, let me just, I want to read verse 13 just to give you, because I think that's important as we launch into this new section. So 13 through 16 here for starters, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We talked about that last week. Then Paul says, how then will they call on him 
in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? I want to pause there because, you know, just looking back at what we talked about last week, Paul has um, reminded this church that the gospel is to be proclaimed to all people. Without exception, indiscriminately, the gospel is to be proclaimed to all people. Because all people, that is to say, regardless of ethnic, racial, Uh, socioeconomic status, educational background, regardless of past history of any type of sin or even the severity of sin, God brings about salvation to those who earnestly seek him in faith. We're talking about drug addicts, prostitutes, adulterers, those practicing homosexuality, pornographers, serial killers, terrorists, child molesters, They're all to be given the gospel. We don't withhold the gospel from anyone because, again, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, who trusts in Jesus Christ as his or her only hope to be right with God, will be saved. But, Paul says, how will anyone call on the name of the Lord if no one tells them about him? And then Paul answers the question as to whether or not his own people, the Jews, which is actually, we'll see this in the last part of the section. This is a big part of this. Paul's going to answer the question as to whether or not his own people, his fellow Jewish people, have not believed because they've not heard. And he'll go on to say, no, that's actually not the issue at all. They have heard. Um, That's not the problem. But the, you see the way the the rhetorical arguments here or, or questions form the argument. I've been told and I've never really vetted this, but I've been told that in some law schools, students are required to read and analyze the, the arguments of Romans because the logical flow is so clean and so airtight. Um, well, here, again, through a series of rhetorical questions, Paul makes his argument as it relates to, A, the need for gospel proclamation, but also the culpability of his fellow Jews. Uh, and his argument goes something like this. If in order for someone to call on the name of the Lord, we're going to break down each of these. In order for someone to call on the name of the Lord, he has to believe. But then he says, in order for someone to believe, he or or she, of course, has to hear the gospel proclaimed. But in order for someone to actually hear the gospel proclaimed, naturally, someone has to preach the gospel. But, he says, in order for someone to preach the gospel... He has to be sent. And then Paul says that all of these things have happened and his fellow kinsmen have still not believed. So let's look at Paul's argument here. What does it mean to say that in order for someone to call in the name of the Lord, he has to believe? Well, this is a reference to a belief, um, not only that there is a God, that God exists, but that he is glorious and holy that his, his wrath will be poured out on everyone who sinned against him, which means that means everyone, because everyone sinned against him. So when someone believes that about God, that there is this God, and, and he is holy, and he's sovereign, and he's eternal, and he's all-powerful, then the only reasonable response 
you know, having held that belief then, is to call out to that God for forgiveness and to trust in his son. But, Paul says, in order for someone to believe that about God, he has to hear the gospel proclaimed. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, wait a second. I was here when you talked about Romans 1. You preached through Romans 1. And what about creation? Doesn't creation tell us there's a God? And, of course, the answer is yes. So a person can look at a starry sky or a beautiful sunset or can hear the waves of the ocean crashing against the beach or see the mountains or or any number of things in creation. You look out, you see the beauty, a person sees the beauty of creation, and that person is confronted with the reality there is a God. So that's what creation tells us. And it's not just people of a certain uh, intellect. It's not certain people who have these keen reasoning skills um, or unusually analytical minds. All it takes to recognize God's existence, his majesty, and his glory is to be alive and to have senses. So that's all it takes. Even the laws of nature, the design of creation reveals God's glory. But creation alone what we call general revelation, is not enough to lead someone to believe in God in a saving way. That is to recognize his or her own sinfulness, God's holiness, God's gift of his son, and Jesus' perfect sacrifice. That takes something else. That takes hearing the gospel. So here's our first point. Uh, What creation reveals in part that God exists, he's awesome and holy, the gospel completes that God has made a way for us to be known and loved by him. And so I hear this all the time, and I'm sure you've heard this all the time. Look, I don't need to go to church. I've had people in my own family say this. I, not my immediate family, but I don't, that wouldn't go well, my immediate family. I wouldn't allow for that. But they've said, they've said to me, look, I don't need to go to church I just go out in nature, and that's and I get my fill of God there. Well, and I say, yeah, you can see God, and, and you can realize that he exists, but he, as an unbeliever or as a believer, we need the gospel. And you can, there's only so much that you can discern from, from creation. We need what's called special revelation. So general revelation, creation, special revelation, what God discloses through the gospel. Uh, so... The gospel tells us not just that there is a God and that he is holy and powerful and awesome, but that he has made a way for us to be right with him, to be reconciled to him, to be brought back to him through the blood of Jesus. And that message must be heard. Paul says in order for the gospel to be heard, someone has to preach it. There's, there's been a, I don't know, I, I was going to say growing number, and I'm not sure if it's still the case or not, but... There are a number of Christians who say, look, we don't need the gospel preached. We just need the gospel lived out. We just have to live good, kind, generous lives. They say that's really the least offensive way. And then sometimes they quote St. Francis of Assisi, a 13th century Italian friar, who allegedly wrote, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Now, I say allegedly because no one's ever found this in any of St. Francis' writings. So, but somehow he is credited with saying this. Well, that statement 
even though some people say, wow, that sounds really spiritual. Like that's, that's awesome. Like we don't have to say anything, just live good lives. That statement has become among some the object of ridicule. And they say, rightly, if the gospel is news, if it's the, if it's the, the announcement of what someone has done, you know, namely Christ himself, God in sending his son, if the gospel is news, the proclamate the news about Christ's obedient life, his death and resurrection, how do we live that out? I mean, how do we actually live? How do we act that out? Of course, we can't, you can't act out, um, you know, there are productions and so on, but you can't act out a perfectly obedient life. You know, you can't act out being the God man. Nobody can do that. You can't act out the resurrection and so on. And so some then are saying, you know, I guess in a mocking way perhaps, but they say, preach the gospel without words. Okay, say that again without using words. And then, well, you can't really do that. You can't, it requires words. News has to be proclaimed. News has to be told. It can't just be lived out. So technically, and I'm not trying to be, you know, critical here, but technically the gospel can't be lived out. Now you can live and we're called to live in light of the gospel. We're called to live in such a way that's been a life that's transformed by the gospel, but technically you can't live out the gospel. Now, of course, we want to be, and we should be loving and kind, and generous, and thoughtful, and gracious, and all of those things. As Christians, we want to exemplify Jesus. Absolutely. But our example will never save anyone. There's nothing we can act out. There's nothing we can live out that actually would save anyone. Only the gospel proclaimed. Baptist leader and author Albert Moeller says this, there are those who would like to believe that we can bring the gospel near just by being there, by being kind, just, righteous, and loving. But the reality is, even though we're called to be all of those things, and they're signs of the gospel, the gospel requires articulation. The gospel requires words in order to be heard received, or even rejected. So why does the gospel has to be, must it be proclaimed? Because it is, Romans 1, the power of God unto salvation. God saves people when the gospel is proclaimed. And I think, you know, sometimes one of our, one of the reasons we're reluctant to actually share the gospel is because I think we forget that what we're actually sharing is good news. We think the gospel is, you know, telling people you need to turn your life around. You need to stop cursing or smoking or drinking or any of that stuff. You got to start acting right. You got to be a better person. And, and maybe, yeah, there are times when somebody needs to hear that, but that's actually not the gospel. We think when we got the gospel, the way that we often, uh, you know, frame it in our minds, we're, we're giving people bad news. So my son, my second son called me a couple of weeks ago. He's, he's finishing up his college degree um, uh, over a long period of time. And, um, and he called me and said, hey, I'm, I've got a few classes left, but I just got this job offer. 
I said, okay, what is it? He said, oh, it's, it's amazing. It's going to guaranteed hours, guarantee money. And he said, it is going door to door selling solar panels. And I said, okay, I mean, think about this. Almost everybody has a ring doorbell now. And no one is going to answer the door to some, you know, you're a good looking kid and you, you have charm or whatever, but no one's going to answer. The people just don't answer the door are the people they don't know. Like this is a very difficult thing. I mean, and, and he said, and he did admit, you know, we, we're, we've been prepared to get no a lot. And so we're going to get no a lot. Well, sometimes I think we, when we think about sharing the gospel, we, we think of ourselves as kind of salespeople. And we, we're trying to persuade people of all, but really we're actually delivering news. Now, of course, this is news that does call for a response, but this is good news. The gospel is such good news that it tells us we can be known and loved and adopted into the family of the creator of the universe. We can, we can belong to this God. Um, we're broken people separated from God because of our own sin, but God has made a way for us to be forgiven and to be reconciled. The gospel is a message of forgiveness and, and not just that God forgiveness forgives us, praise God for that, but he also gives us the righteousness of God by faith. So he gives us the very Christ's very righteousness when we believe. So you know, it's not just that he wipes out all of our sinful past and then leaves us with kind of an account that's empty. He actually credits to our account every good thing that Jesus deserves. Think about this. Everything that Jesus deserves, we get. So God's love. We have uh, a confidence in the future. We have God's unwavering approval. We have a future inheritance. We have complete and total acceptance by God. Everything that Jesus deserves, we get. That's, that's what the gospel says. And, and the, of course, the other side of that is everything that we deserve, Jesus gets. So he gets God's wrath that we deserve. He gets condemnation that we deserve. He gets punishment that we deserve. I was on the treadmill the other day listening to a podcast, and this was a guy, one of my friends keeps recommending, but I really had not listened to him yet. But I was listening to this guy on the treadmill, and, and I heard, and he said something that I almost, it, it, I actually froze for a second. I almost fell off the treadmill. You've seen those uh, gifts, right? The, the people that get you know, wiped out by the treadmill. I almost fell off the treadmill. This guy said, for parents who have lost a child, God knows what that's like. God lost a son. And I thought for a second, I said I froze. I thought, could that really be right? I mean, is that really correct? Now, we don't want to go too far with this, but Yes, God's own son was cut off from his father. There was so much evil heaped on Jesus, so much sin that he'd never committed, but our sin heaped on Jesus that God the Father couldn't even look on him. He had to avert his eyes, so to speak. All blessedness was removed from his son whom he loved, and in his place was the full measure of the divine curse. So the gospel says again, 
everything that we deserve that actually is rightly ours because of our rebellion has been heaped on Jesus. And everything Jesus deserves by virtue of his perfect obedience, his death and his resurrection, that becomes ours. So we deserve to be cut off, but instead we are accepted. We deserve to be condemned, but instead we are loved and forgiven. And all of this is such great news, Paul says, it has to be preached. And not just preached to the people near us. Paul asks in verse 15, how will someone preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who pro- proclaim the good news. And that, you think about that. That's kind of an odd say, sentence, isn't it? How beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news. We think if I were writing it, I would say how beautiful is the mouth of the one who proclaims good news. That, to me, that makes more sense. But call, Paul calls the, the feet beautiful because feet imply movement. Feet implies going traveling, leaving home, taking a journey. So see, a, a message must have messengers and God, God calls some to go and preach the message to others. Over the years, I've heard about people going into pastoral ministry because they just couldn't find anything else they wanted to do. And for some people, this is, I've heard this too, for some people, they go into pastoral ministry because they can't succeed at anything else. And so they think, you know, that they're going to go into pastoral ministry and that's going to be the place for them. Well, if you hate your job, you know, with a visceral passion or you failed at everything else you've done, that doesn't mean God's calling you to pastoral ministry, Right. And those people who end up there, they, they typically only last, you know, six or nine months before they destroy a church. Well, I remember as a 27-year-old, and I had, and in many ways, I had actually reached my, you know, in some ways, my dream in life. I was on television twice a day. Uh, I was covering professional sports, the NFL from the field, the NBA from courtside, uh, Major League Baseball from the dugout at times. I had my press credentials, which allowed me to get in any, you know, any sporting event at any time. Um, under the bright lights, all that stuff. It was, it was exhilarating. It was, it was fascinating. But for some mysterious reason, I started to sense another passion really bubbling up inside of me as I served in the local church and was discipling at-risk young men. And as I was reading theology and it was one that was frankly unrelenting and it was, I, 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 I want to deliver, I want to be a deliverer of good news. I want to tell people who are broken and beaten down and overwhelmed with shame and feeling like their past is so much that it must necessarily forever condemn them. I want to tell those people about forgiveness, God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And in an unmistakable way, God called me from the work in sports broadcasting, the television industry, he called me to preach the gospel. And so I said, I said, God, I'll go wherever you send me. Now, in my head, I did think, I just hope it's not somewhere cold because I've had enough of that in my life. Um, but I said, okay, I want to go and I want to preach the gospel. I want to preach the scriptures. I want to give people good news. Now, of course, not everybody must go and preach, per se. 
Some must, or how will people hear the people who have never heard? So not all must preach, but we are all, as Pastor Adam showed us a couple of weeks ago, uh, called to be ministers of reconciliation. So we're all called to proclaim the gospel. It's not going to look like for very many of you standing up on a stage, you know, preaching to a church. Maybe for some it will, and for some it does. But it does mean for all of us that we are to be those who announce the good news to people. Why? Verse 17, because faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, the word of Christ is a, a synonym for the gospel, first delivered by Christ and then announced and spread by God's messengers. So when people hear the gospel, Paul says in verse 17, when they hear the gospel, faith, uh, they're brought to faith. God works through it to raise people from the dead, spiritually speaking, to bring them to saving faith, to re-alter their affections, to really and truly change what they love, to re-alter their priorities. And I think one of the big, biggest problems as the church, and if I can be transparent with you, one of my biggest problems as a pastor is I don't always believe in the power of the gospel the way I should. If I did, I'd be sharing it more. I would have uh, grander expectations when I do share it. But I don't always believe in the power of the gospel the way that I should. But Paul says, when people hear the gospel, they are brought to faith. It's that powerful. Now, of course, not every time, but God brings people to faith. So here's our second point. The gospel is endued with divine power. When Christians proclaim it, God brings about supernatural results. When we proclaim the gospel, when you share the gospel with a friend or a neighbor or a coworker, we have no idea what God's going to make happen. But sometimes, because of his own sovereign grace, sometimes God actually takes that proclamation, that discussion, those new, the news that we're sharing, and he brings people to saving faith. The gospel, we can say, even say, is wired with power. The gospel is divinely powerful because the, the, the God of the universe who has all power has chosen to use it as his vessel, as the news to bring people to saving faith. It doesn't become powerful if it is articulated, you know, in the right way in terms of all the nuancing, in terms of the tone and pitch and tenor and all that stuff. It doesn't become powerful. It is the power of God. And I have to tell you, I wish I believed that at all times. I heard the story from one pastor who told of a man coming to faith, saving faith at the end of a congregational meeting because the scriptures, at their congregational meetings, they take time at the beginning to read the scriptures. The scriptures were read publicly with a mind toward Christ and a man came up at the end and said, I need to, I need to repent and be saved. Now, congregational meetings, they don't usually, you've been to those, they don't contain a lot of, typically a lot of riveting stuff, not even a lot of spiritual stuff. It's about budgets and plans and buildings and these sorts of things, family stuff. But even in a setting like that, when the scriptures are read, the Holy Spirit is at work. And sometimes 
by his own good pleasure, God, we, we call ours members meetings. Sometimes, whatever the context is, even in a members meeting, God, by his own good pleasure, may work in such a way to pierce through the heart of someone who is spiritually dead and stubborn and rebellious and bring that person to saving faith. So if I can summarize what we've seen so far, just living a good life is not enough. Just doing your job well is not enough. Now, yeah, you should, we should be doing our respective jobs well. We're called to do that. But we do actually have to tell people about Jesus, who he is, and what he accomplished. So just being a kind person is not actually proclaiming the gospel. You cannot, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but you cannot live out the gospel. You can, again, you can live in light of the gospel as well we should, but the gospel must be proclaimed. People need to hear this news. Unbelievers and believers, those who are living as though they don't really need God, maybe checking into church every once in a while, but not actually resting in him by faith. They need to hear that a life lived apart from God is meaningless and ends in eternal condemnation. They need to hear the gospel, the good news about who Christ is and what he's done. Those who have rejected God need to hear that they will someday, that God will someday judge every living person and those who've rejected him will pay for all eternity for their rebellion. But those who've trusted in Jesus will have their accounts settled in a different way. What they deserve, as I mentioned, goes to Jesus. Believers need to hear, actually hear the gospel. Those who are exhausted from trying to show their peers, their spouse, their parents, their children, their neighbors, whoever it might be, that they've made something of themselves. They've accomplished something in their lives. They need to convince everybody around them that they're significant, that they have value. They need to hear that they are in Christ God already thinks the world of them. They don't have to show God that they're significant or to be valued. The one whose opinion matters over everyone else's looks at them as a cherished child, a son or daughter of the king by faith in Christ. Those who've sinned repeatedly in the same ways and those, those who have heard and maybe been under bad preaching or been around judgmental Christians and they've heard someone say to them, look what you've done, no, there's no hope for you. There's no hope for that. Those who believe that their past condemns them, what they've done is going to forever haunt them, they need to hear the good news of the gospel that God has already credited to them Christ's clean and stain-free record. Those Christians who are worn out from trying to prove to God that they're worthy of being loved by him by endlessly trying to do one more thing they can just do one more thing. They need to hear that God's love doesn't vacillate like ours does. His love for those in Christ is steady, persistent, deep, and unmoved. Just like the psalmist says over and over again, he praises the steadfast love of God. They need to hear those who are endlessly trying to prove to God their worth being loved they need to hear that God's favor is forever draped over them because of the work of Christ on their behalf. But we have to realize that not all who hear the gospel will respond favorably. Look back at uh, verse 16 again. Paul says, 
but they, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For as Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed that he has heard from us? Now, this is, this, if you've been around this church very long, that's probably going to raise an antenna or at least spark a question. The phrase, not all have obeyed the gospel. Because if you've been around here very long, you've heard me or one of us say, the gospel is not what we do. It's about what Jesus has done. The gospel is not even something we do. So how would a person be called to obey the gospel? What in the world does that mean? If the gospel is the announcement of what Jesus has done, then how are we supposed to obey it? Are we just simply supposed to believe it? Well, here Paul talks about how some, namely his fellow Israelites, did not obey the gospel. Again, how can you obey the gospel if it's good news about what someone else has done? Well, the last part of verse 16 makes clear what Paul's talking about. And he quotes from Isaiah 53. He says, who has believed what he has heard from us? So some have not obeyed the gospel. That is, they've not believed the gospel. They've not embraced this news in such a way that their submission to God is, is evident by their genuine faith. So, New Testament scholar Frank Thielman says this beautifully. He says, Paul's argument up to this point has demonstrated that faith in the gospel is not a work, but simply trust in God's word. Believing the gospel nevertheless involves submission to God. And this comes out clearly when Paul speaks of obeying the gospel. A guy a few years older than Frank Thielman, Charles Cranfield says, what has been lacking has been their submission to the message that is faith on the part of the hearer. So to believe is not just to accept a certain set of facts. Say, yeah, I can accept that those facts are true as if we're considering, you know, how a program works or how a machine fits together. To believe is to recognize Christ as Savior and Lord and therefore to trust in him for salvation. Of course, to recognize that he is Savior and Lord and we need to be saved, of course, uh, presupposes that we understand we need to be saved from something. So to believe, or in Paul's word here, Romans 10, to obey, is to come under the gospel to believe, to submit to the gospel in such a way that it reveals our understanding of our own sinfulness, our recognition of God's holiness, and our trust in Jesus Christ as our only hope for salvation. So to not believe, and this is important, very important, is not simply to, to not believe the gospel is not simply to choose another viable alternative, but to reject Christ as Savior and Lord is to not submit to him. That is to reject what the gospel claims about Jesus. So here's what I'm saying. This is our final point. To refuse to believe in Christ is not simply an intellectual decision, but an act of rebellion. So in some circles... Churches will do, um, at the end of the service, they'll have a long, often extended uh, altar call, and they will, they will plead for people to come, front, to, come to the front, and, and maybe there's, there's a song that's normally four verses, but somehow it's expanded to seven verses or whatever, and it just kind of goes on. There's a lot of pleading, a lot of cajoling, and a lot of emotional stuff. 
Well, um, that was actually not something that the early church ever did. This, uh, this was a practice that sprung up in the mid-1800s through a man named Charles Finney. And what happened in the, there was what's called the First Great Awakening, which was the early 1700s. And God did this incredible, miraculous, supernatural thing through Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and others. So God brought thousands of people to saving faith in the early 1700s, mid-1700s. Well, in the 1800s, the Second Great Awakening was more people saying, we've got to replicate, we've got to manufacture what God did 100 plus years ago. So the Second Great Awakening, you got guys like Charles Finney and others who did everything they could. Finney actually put at the front of the, uh, the sanctuary what was called the Anxious Bench. And what happened is he, he would plead and cajole and do whatever it t- took to make the altar call successful. And people would go to the Anxious Bench, um, you know, hoping that with all of this cajoling, something would happen. So now to be sure, the proclamation of God's word does demand a response. But as theologian R.C. Sproul famously said, invitations are for weddings. The gospel calls for repentance and belief. The truth is, as you've likely heard me say before, Jesus didn't come to the earth reasoning unto acceptance, but proclaiming unto submission. Jesus' message wasn't, here I am, please invite me into your heart. His message wasn't, will you please accept me? His message wasn't, won't you be my neighbor? That was the other really nice guy, you know, who wore the cardigans and changed his shoes at the end of the workday. Jesus calls people to hear the gospel and to repent and believe. And those who don't believe, please hear me, those who don't believe are not demonstrating some intellectual superiority, nor are they opting for another viable view. They were, in fact, rejecting Jesus himself. So it's not a matter of, I hear the gospel and I'm going to determine on my own if this is a legitimate claim. And if I determine it's illegitimate, then I'm still, you know, not making a decision or taking the high road. Everybody who hears the gospel necessarily responds. They always respond. Now, a non-response is a response. A non-response to Jesus is, in fact, rejecting Jesus. Jesus calls all people who, to hear, hear the gospel, to repent and believe. Now, having said that, um, I want to say we want people here who are wrestling with this. We want people here who are asking hard questions. We want skeptics here. If you're here this morning and you're investigating Jesus, we are thrilled that you're here. You're not in the wrong place. But we don't ever want to communicate that a non-response to the gospel is a neutral action. A non-response is, in fact, rejection of God and his son. This is what Paul says in this last section, which I'm going to cover in just about a minute or so. But look at verses 18 through 22. Paul says, but I ask, have they not heard? He's talking about his fellow kinsmen, Israelite people. Indeed, they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. 
But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So Paul's responding to the anticipated objection that Israel didn't believe the gospel because no one ever told them. And Paul says, that's not the case. They heard it. They just refused to believe it. Jesus himself was sent. He sent his apostles first to the lost sheep of Israel. The issue was not ignorance. The issue, Paul says, was disobedience. But then don't miss the last part. Don't miss verse 21. All day long, I've held out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. And I love that first phrase. All day long, I've held out my hand. This is the Lord speaking. This verse shows God's heart for the lost. What one, t- one 17th century theologian uh, commentator calls a picture of the everlasting arms of God spread open in unwearied love. Now, that's a beautiful description. The, un, the everlasting arms of God spread open in unwearied love, a love that never grows faint or grows tired. This loving and all-powerful God calls all to repent and believe. For those who do, they demonstrate that God has first done a work in them. Those who don't, they get exactly what they demand, temporary autonomy. But it is very temporary. You know, sometimes people say Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Okay, yes, uh, as far as it goes. Uh, They say we want to invite people into a relationship with God. Well, the reality is every single person is in a relationship with God of some sort. He is either to them their heavenly father or he is either to them the righteous judge who will soon judge them for their disobedience. God is no stranger to anyone, but he is only a loving father to those who repent and believe. Now, I want to answer the final question, the question I posed in the introduction. What do we say to those who, like the ones in this passage, who, who don't believe? They've heard the message. They don't believe. And maybe they're even saying to us, I really want to believe. What do we say? Well, I think we say this. The fact that you want to believe is nothing less than God's kindness to you. So let's start there. The fact that you say you want to believe, that's God's kindness to you. Because frankly, many people don't want to believe. Many people don't want to even deal with the claims of Jesus. So the fact that you want to believe, you ought to regard that as a kindness of God. The fact that you want to believe could very well be God saying to you, what more can I say to you? What more can I show you than I've already shown Not only have I given you everything you enjoy, parents, friends, life, laughter, food, pleasure, all of these things, but I've also sent my son to die for sinners like you. He went to the cross and was raised again for sinners like you. Your willingness to wrestle is good. I understand when I say that this is a hard thing to say to someone. But I think we say your willingness to wrestle is good and the fact that you want to believe is good, but now it's time to repent and believe. And God will give you the Holy Spirit. God is saying, 
trust me, receive this good news. What I'm offering to you is a gift. It's not something you can achieve or earn. It's nothing you can ever do, but you can receive it. Receive it now by believing. And I hope this morning, if you're here and you've never put your faith in Christ, that again, we're glad if you're wrestling. I'm personally thrilled if you're here and you're just, just investigating Jesus. I'm really happy about it. But no, if you say you want to believe, if you say you want to know God, that in itself is God's kindness toward you. And what you ought to do today and what God is calling you to do today is to turn from your sin and turn to God in repentant faith. Let's pray.